Hello, my name is Stacey and welcome to Run With Me On This, a podcast to motivate, educate and distract you. There are two versions of this podcast, so if you're hearing music right now, you've downloaded the music version. This is perfect for those of you wanting to listen whilst you're out for a run. The music is designed to be upbeat and keep you going for the next half an hour or so. All of the songs are from independent artists and the playlists will be available in the show notes. If you're not hearing any music, then you've chosen the beat-free version. Feel free to listen whilst you chill at home, on the train or in bed. Don't worry, I'm not offended if my voice helps you fall asleep. Other than the music, both versions are exactly the same. This episode is all about time. Why are there 60 seconds in a minute? How is time travel possible? And why are Ethiopians living in the past? I'm going to answer all these questions and so many more. So, if you have the time, why not run with me on this? What is time? Well, according to Google, it's 3.43pm. No, I'm just kidding. Time is the indefinite continued progress of existence and events that occur in an apparently irreversible succession from past through the present into the future. Oh boy, this is already too complicated for me. Mm -hmm. Time is a component quantity of various measurements used to sequence events to compare the duration of events or the intervals between them and to quantify rates of change of quantities in material reality or in conscious experiences. What on earth does all that mean? Well, time can be what the clock says right now. Well, time can be the measured passing of certain events, such as sunrise, sunset. Generally speaking, methods of temporal measurement, i.e. measuring time, can take the form of the calendar and the clock. The clock tends to be used for any measurement of time under 24 hours, and the calendar measures days, months, years. We have evidence dating as far back as the Paleolithic era, suggesting that the moon was used to measure time. This is approximately 6,000 years ago. Lunar calendars usually had 12 or 13 lunar months, which meant they totaled 354 or 384 days. As you can imagine, without an accurate measure of one year, the seasons could drift quite quickly from year to year. So you could find you've booked your Caribbean cruise for summer 2020, but when you get there, it's snowing. Other early forms of calendars came from the Mayan civilization in Mesoamerica. These were based on religion and astronomy and had 18 months to each year. Each month had 20 days in it. To keep the calendar year from drifting, they would add five days, known as epigaminal days, to the end of the year. In 45 BC, Julius Caesar came along and decided we should be using a solar calendar rather than a lunar one. This was the Julian calendar so-called because it was sliced up into tiny pieces like julienne carrot? No, of course not. He named it after himself, obviously. But people didn't like his calendar. Every year it was out by 11 minutes, which meant after a few years the seasons had drifted again and the solstices and equinoxes were out of sync. 1,500 years later, Pope Gregory VIII thought, Today, I'm going to invent me a calendar. And it's going to blow that Julian one out of the water. Well, he was true to his word. 
and the Gregorian calendar is used today by the majority of the world. His calendar spaces leap years every four years and makes the average year shorter by 0.0075 days to avoid the seasonal drift. When he first introduced his calendar, Gregory had to deal with the drift caused by the Julian calendar already. And so he just skipped the first Gregorian calendar forward by 10 days, which means that Thursday the 4th of October 1582 was followed by Friday the 15th of October 1852. Now this is totally unfair because my birthday's on the 7th of October, so it means I wouldn't have had any presents that year. Now, everyone assumes that leap years happen every four years, but that's not exactly true. Gasp, I hear you gasp. The rule is, every year that is exactly divisible by four is a leap year. Great, got it so far. Except for years that are exactly divisible by 100. Now, hang on. The year 2000 was a leap year and that's divisible by 100. But wait, there's more. These centurial years are leap years if they are exactly divisible by 400. So, the years 1700, 1800 and 1900 are not leap years, but 1600 and the year 2000 are leap years. The year 2100 will not be a leap year. Imagine being a leapling. Yes, that is what people who are born on February the 29th are called. Imagine being a leapling in 1900 and seeing that calendar flip from the 28th of February to the 1st of March. You'd be absolutely devastated. Sat there surrounded by your party balloons and everyone's like, Hey Kevin, you ain't getting a birthday this year, mate. Although most of the world uses the Gregorian calendar, it has by no means been adopted by everyone. The Balinese Pawukon calendar, for example, is one of two calendars used on the Indonesian island of Bali. The Pawukon calendar year is 210 days long and consists of six 35-day months. This number reflects the ancient rice-growing cycles of the island. After that, the calendar gets very complicated. Days can last weeks, days of the week do not always follow the same order, and sometimes Days are just repeated. One of the more well-known alternative calendars is the Chinese calendar. This governs the dates of Chinese holidays, such as Chinese New Year. This is essentially a lunar calendar with 12 months of 29 or 30 days. Each month in year can be represented by an animal or a number. But usually for everyday business, the Chinese will use the Gregorian calendar, as we do. Now, Ethiopia has a very interesting calendar, as well as quite a unique way of keeping time. Firstly, they calculated Jesus' birth as being seven years later than the Gregorian calendar, and it's therefore 2013 in Ethiopia right now. This means that in Ethiopia, Donald Trump isn't American president yet, Disney's Frozen is just hitting the big screen, and Marmite hasn't been mixed with peanut butter Oh, simpler times. Not only does Ethiopia have a different calendar, they have a completely different way of telling time. Because they're so close to the equator, the sun pretty much rises and sets the same time every day. It is so predictable, they can literally set their watches by it. Instead of 1am being in the middle of the night, 1 o'clock in the morning is the time that sun rises. This would be approximately 7am to our watch. 
They have 12 hours of sunlight every day. When the sun sets, time resets and the hour of sunset is called one o'clock in the night time. And they use daylight and night time rather than a.m. and p.m. It can be a little confusing if someone's agreed to meet you at three o'clock in the morning and you arrive all bleary-eyed in the middle of the night and they don't get there until 9 a.m. In the 1790s, during the French Revolution, a new clock and calendar were invented in an attempt to de-Christianise time and create a more rational system to replace the Gregorian calendar. The French Republican calendar had days of 10 hours long. Each hour had 100 minutes, and each minute 100 seconds. It didn't last long, however, and was abolished in 1806. It's difficult for us to imagine what an hour with 100 minutes, each of 100 seconds, is like. I bet you're thinking about it now and imagining a second to be lasting as long as, well, that. So why do we use 60 as a base for seconds and minutes? Well, it's all down to the ancient Sumerians and their use of the sexagesimal system. Don't worry, sexagesimal isn't rude. Your kids can stay in the room. Sexagesimal is a number system with 60 as its base. Because the number 60 has 12 factors, meaning it can be divided in 12 different ways, it can be split up into easy-to-work-out fractions. For example, 30, 20, 15, 10, 5, 1, etc, etc. The sexagesimal system is also used for measuring angles, which is why a circle is 360 degrees. Now, for a neat little trick. How much can you count to on one hand? If you just said 5, then I'm afraid you're wrong. The answer is 12. So, if you can count to 12 on one hand, how much can you count to on 2? No, the answer isn't 24. It's 60. <gasps> what? The sexagesimal system strikes again. Okay, so here's how you do it. Look at your right hand. Now imagine each bone in your fingers represents a number. With your thumb, touch each bone and count them. Starting with your little finger at the tip, middle, base. Go on to your ring finger and do the same. There are 12, right? This is how many Asian countries still count nowadays rather than using each finger individually. But Stacy, you said we could count to 60. Okay, okay. So if every time you count to 12 on your right hand, you stick up one digit on your left hand, you'll then be able to keep a tally of the number of 12s you've counted. So 12, 24, 36, 48, and once all the fingers on your left hand are sticking up, by George, you've counted to 60. So now that we can count to 60, that means, well, seconds and minutes are not far behind. Well, not quite. Before we can talk about the concept of seconds or even minutes, we have to look at the standardisation of hours. So many devices have been invented over the years to measure time. An Egyptian device from 1500 BC, which is similar to like a bent T-square, measured the passage of time from the shadow cast by its crossbar onto a set of markings calibrated to the hour. This is essentially a sundial. At noon, the device would have to be turned around to be sure to catch the afternoon sun. Egyptians were the ones who created the 24-hour day because they separated the half-day into 12 hours. 
Remember, the lunar calendars split up into 12 months, and the number 12 held a lot of significance to the Egyptians. But as good as the sundial is at telling time on a lovely sunny day in Egypt, can you imagine trying to use it in the UK? Excuse me, why are you late for work? Sorry, my sundial didn't go off. It's too cloudy. Or what if you've got a hot date but can't tell the time because it's night? Well, that's where water clocks come in. The ancient Egyptians, Greeks and Mesopotamians all kept time with water clocks. The water clock could be used as a timer as well as a clock to tell the time. A clay pot would have a little spout sticking out at the bottom. The pot would be filled with water and the water would run out of the spout at a standardised rate. This could be used, for example, in a courtroom where the lawyer had an allotted amount of time to state their case. They get a pot, fill it with water, and they've got as long as it takes for the pot to empty. Other versions of the water clock would consist of a container with markers on the side to denote time. The water would drain out at the perfect rate, so the time was always accurate so long as there was always someone available to top up the water at the end of the day. In addition to water clocks, hourglasses or sand timers were filled with sand to allow the sand to fall from the top of the timer down to the bottom. They were very common for use at sea. Now, you would have probably used one of these if you've played any board game in the last 70 years. Candles could also be made to burn for certain numbers of hours with markers on the side to show the time. These were very popular in temples or churches. But water was the gold standard at the time. And once you've got water, you have motion. You can then get the water to move gears and you're pretty close to having a mechanical timepiece. In the 11th century in China, the first clocks with escapement mechanisms using pendulums, gears and weights were invented. By the 14th century, water wasn't needed and the first truly mechanical clocks were invented in Europe. One of the oldest working clocks is found in Salisbury Cathedral in England, which was completed in 1386. This watch has no face and tells time by striking the hours. As the years went by, it was customary to fit all clocks with chimes so they could echo through the house and tell everyone the time on the hour. Clocks would be the cornerstone of a town or village and everyone would use the same clock in the centre of town to keep time. In the 1540s, the famous Swiss watchmaking industry was born after reformer John Calvin banned people from wearing jewellery. All the jewellers had to find another way to pay the bills and so they started making watches. In the 17th century, the first pocket watches were invented. And we were all suddenly handed a number one excuse to be late for work. Oh, sorry, I forgot to wind my watch. Once you have a pendulum and more accurate timekeeping, then you can introduce a minute hand. This was around 1690. It was called the minute hand because it measured the minute divisions of the hour. And not longer after this came the second hand, or originally the second minute hand because it measured the secondary minute divisions of the hour. So although we always see that 60 seconds makes a minute and 60 minutes makes an hour, in reality, the days and the hours came first. A minute is only as long as it is, because the hour has been divided by 60. And the second is as long as it is, because the minute has been divided by 60. 
pendulum clocks still remained the most accurate clocks right up until the 1930s, when quartz oscillators were invented. We've all had watches which said quartz on them, but what does that really mean? A quartz watch is battery powered. The battery sends electricity to a tiny quartz crystal, which then vibrates quickly and with precise frequency. The integrated circuit counts the vibrations and generates a regular electric pulse of one per second. This in turn drives the second hand to move, which in turn moves the minute hand and the hour hand. Once quartz watches were available, they could be made quickly and cheaply. And by the 1980s, this was the dominant timekeeping technology. But if you want the most accurate timekeeping device, you need to turn to atomic clocks. The first accurate atomic clock was built by Lewis Essen and Jack Parry in 1955 in the UK. They used atoms of cesium-133. When they energised cesium-133 with radio waves, the atoms vibrated, resulting in a specific frequency, much like with the quartz crystal. By counting the vibrations, they were able to define the most accurate duration of one second. So next time someone asks you to define a second, just remember that it's 9,192,631,770 cycles of the radiation that gets an atom of cesium to vibrate between two energy states. Simples. So what I've described so far is a pretty linear concept of time. One in which the seconds, minutes and hours just tick along at a regular pace, moving forward, always predictable. Unless we count Pope Gregory's missing 10 days in 1582. For centuries, we've been obsessed with the idea of time travel. I have to be honest, the concept of time travel absolutely confounds me. I'm fine with the simple go forward or back in time to change a thing. But once you start saying... This thing only happened because you went back to before you were born and saved a dog from the dog catcher. And I'm all like, hang on, how can I have done that if I'm not even born yet? Then the idea of independent thought, self-choice, free will all go out the window and you think, oh, what's the point? It's all predetermined anyway. That was the storyline of the recent TV series Devs, which is great. And I hope I haven't spoiled anything for those currently watching it. But if so, you are supposed to hear the spoilers. It's predetermined. Films such as Back to the Future, Groundhog Day and Terminator are amongst the most popular films of all time. And they're all about time travel. But time travel has been theorised for hundreds of years, way before Hollywood latched on to the idea. In Hindu mythology, the Mahabharata, a major Sanskrit epic of ancient India, tells the story of King... Revata Kakudmi, who travels to heaven to meet the creator, Brahma. He takes his beautiful daughter up with him to ask Brahma which man she should marry. When he returns to earth, he's surprised to find many ages have passed, and I mean like thousands of years. So, unfortunately, all the suitors were dead. All Kakudmi's family were dead. He had no money, no house. So he had to marry off his daughter, and then he went off backpacking to find himself. The Buddhist scriptures, Pali Canon, mention the relativity of time, stating time moves differently in heaven than on earth. There are Japanese stories of a man who visits an undersea world for a few days, but when he comes home, 300 years have passed. 
Early science fiction stories usually depict characters that fall asleep for a long time, only to awake to find society has changed and no one knows who they are. One famous story along these lines is Rip Van Winkle by Washington Irving from 1819. Rip Van Winkle sleeps for 20 years and completely misses the American Revolution. But before then, over in France, Louis Sebastien Mercier was writing L'Anne, 2440, terrible French accent, which involves waking up in the year 2440. But is a long sleep really time travel? Are we saying that just because you're not conscious of the movement through time, that time hasn't existed? If so, we'd be time travelling every night. My cat would be time travelling for 23 hours a day. Now, travelling back in time, that's proper time travel. The first literary work to describe going back in time was Memoirs of the 20th Century, written in 1733 by Samuel Madden. This book is a series of letters from British ambassadors in 1997 and 1998 to diplomats in the past, conveying the political and religious conditions of the future. The letters were delivered by a guardian angel. Unfortunately, Madden wasn't happy with his work, and shortly after it was published, he looked to destroy as many copies as he could. Because of this, no one really read it, And so it's thought that his work has had very little influence on the future time travel science fiction. But it is still counted as the earliest example of true time travel. Charles Dickens, we've all heard of him. In A Christmas Carol, which he wrote in 1843, there's an early example of time travel both backwards and forwards as Ebenezer Scrooge is transported to Christmases of past and future. The idea of changing what you do in the present to potentially influence your future is postulated and has been copied by hundreds of books and films ever since. Edward Everett Hales's 1881 novel, Hands Off, tells the story of the soul of a recently dead person travelling to ancient Egypt and preventing Joseph's enslavement. Yeah, Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. This is one of the first examples of someone going back in time to change the future and create an alternate history. Not just changing what you do now to change the future, but changing what has already happened. Now, if you're playing Run With Me Bingo, it's time to cross off the Industrial Revolution. Yes, as technology improved, so did the possibilities of time travel. And machines to help you move through time and space started cropping up everywhere. One of the first stories to feature a time machine is The Clock That Went Backwards in 1881. This story kind of does what it says on the tin. If you wind the hands back on this special clock, then time goes back a few hours. But the first proper time machine, which was an actual vessel to travel in, was featured in El Ana Cronopete by Enrique Gaspar Irimbo in 1887. In this Spanish novel, The time machine is a massive cast iron box propelled by electricity. The machine contains Garcia fluid, which prevents the travellers from getting younger as they travel back in time. The machine also has a broom that sweeps the floor all by itself. I want me one of those. In 1895, H.G. Wells published his book The Time Machine, by which so many subsequent concepts of time travel have been based. He actually kind of invented the words time machine as they hadn't been seen in print before this novel. But is time travel possible? Many in the scientific community believe that backwards time travel is highly unlikely. 
Although we can't go back in time, we do know, however, that clocks on airplanes and satellites travel at a different speed than those on Earth. So what does that mean and how can it be proven? You may have heard of a bloke called Einstein, Albert Einstein, only one of the most famous scientists of all time. Well, he had a theory about how time works, which he called relativity. He proposed, firstly, that space and time are linked together, and also that nothing in our universe can travel faster than the speed of light, which is a measly 186,000 miles per second. The faster you travel, the slower you experience time. Some experiments have been done to support this theory, including one in which two atomic clocks were set at exactly the same time. One clock then got on a plane and the other little clocky stayed at home. The one on the plane had a lovely day out, flying all the way around the earth. When it got back home, the two clocks were compared and the clock that had been on the plane was slightly behind the clock on the ground. This means the clock on the airplane was travelling slower in time than one second per second. This concept affects us on a day-to-day basis, but we never realise it. GPS satellites which orbit the Earth and tell us where we are, how long it will take for us to get somewhere, they all have onboard clocks. But because they're moving faster than we are, their clocks show a slightly different time to ours on Earth. They therefore have to be recalibrated in order for our devices to be able to use it. Otherwise, they'd be sending us off into the sea at midnight. So time travel is possible if you want to experience a few nanoseconds of time passing at a different rate than one second per second. But until we can work out how to go faster than the speed of light, real time travel is unlikely. Something that could help us with this would be wormholes also known as an Einstein-Rosen bridge. A wormhole is a postulated method within the general theory of relativity of moving from one point in space to another without crossing the space in between. Wormholes are a popular feature of science fiction as they allow faster than light interstellar travel within human timescales. This method of space travel is featured in TV shows such as Stargate, Babylon 5, Star Trek and Doctor Who and various Avengers-related movies. It's important not to mix up wormholes and black holes. Wormholes are unproven theory, but potentially could transport you through space and time, and maybe even to alternate realities, galaxies, timelines. Black holes, on the other hand, are real. And they're mean. They're a place in space where gravity pulls so much that even light can't get out. If you end up in a black hole, You'll be dead. Hey kids, don't have nightmares. I'm going to end with a little bit of movie trivia. I mentioned Groundhog Day earlier. It's a popular film. I'm sure many of you have seen it. The main character played by Bill Murray gets stuck in a time loop and has to repeat the same day over and over again until he learns his lesson about being self-centred and arrogant and all the rest of it. During the film, he learns new languages, learns to play the piano and even becomes quite an expert at ice sculpture. But did you know, to be as accomplished as he is in all these skills, to the level he takes it, he would have to repeat the same day 12,403 times. That's 33 years and 358 days. Time travel is all well and good when you can just Marty McFly it back to 1955. But when you have to live it one day at a time, it sounds like torture. Hopefully this hasn't been torture for you and time has flown by. So that's it for this episode. 
Thank you for listening, whether you're running, cycling or doing the washing up. You can follow the show on Twitter at RunWithMePod and Instagram at RunWithMeOnThis. In two weeks' time, look out for the Jog On episode in your podcast feed. This will be a mini episode where I give feedback from listeners, talk about your achievements from the last couple of weeks and recommend some fantastic podcasts. So bye-bye for now and remember, what I say may not always make sense, but hey, run with me on this.